This is an ABC podcast. I mean, our own preconceptions of the Victorians, I think, has them as kind of staid, old-fashioned, you know, rather fuddy-duddy. But of course, that isn't how the Victorians thought about themselves. I mean, on the contrary, the Victorians thought of themselves as really being at the cutting edge of progress. With their mutton-chop sideburns and stovepipe hats, the Victorians, well, they seem a world away. But their ideas about invention and genius live on in Silicon Valley today, according to historian Ewan Rees-Morris, author of the delightfully titled book, How the Victorians Took Us to the Moon. They saw themselves in all sorts of ways different from their predecessors. You know, they thought about the future in a different kind of way. In fact, the Victorians invented the way of thinking about the future that we have now. They started reimagining the future literally as a different kind of place, if you like. And if you went back, I don't know, say to 1750 and asked somebody what the future was going to be like, the answer would probably be that you know, the future would be much like the present, a different king on the throne, but otherwise everything's still in its proper place. If you ask the same question in 1850, right at the beginning of the mid-Victorian period, it would be a very different answer. The future then would be imagined as something completely different. It would be powered by electricity. There would be flying machines in the sky. It would be a new kind of future generated by technology. And that, of course, is the way that we think about our futures now as well. Now, we don't think about the future as being the same as the present. We imagine our future as somewhere different, somewhere that's going to be made by technology. And that idea of the future is invented by the Victorians. Now, the latter part of the 19th century became, of course, a time of incredible invention and innovation. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. This is Future Tense. But does our current technological age match the heady days of the late 1800s? And let's remember that this was the age of imperialism. This was the age of colonisation. And yes, the future is being imagined by the Victorians in that kind of way, as a place to go, as somewhere to be taken over, colonised, made their own. And you know, we're talking about white, male, middle-class people, by and large. You know, that's their image of the future. Their notions are still there in our ideas of the future now. And like the Silicon Valley titans of today, they were also very much into hype and grand pronouncements, weren't they? Absolutely so. Someone like Nikola Tesla is a great example of this. Tesla was a relentless self-promoter. And it's fascinating to see the kind of image of himself as inventor that he promoted and his friends in the, in the press and the, in the 1890s invented. Yes, this notion of the inventor as the iconoclast, the rule breaker, the outsider, the disruptor, somebody who's kind of outside the kind of conventional rules of how things are done and very much a kind of individual image. I mean, Tesla saw himself and promoted himself as, if you like, the man who was going to single-handedly reshape the future at the end of the 19th century. And I think that that's very much what makes a figure like Tesla so attractive to our contemporary innovators. Including, of course, Elon Musk, who's named his car company after Nikolai Tesla. Oh, yes, absolutely. So, I mean, I think that's not an accident. I think people like Musk see themselves as 
the direct inheritors of the Tesla that, that, that he promoted, you know, that image that he promoted at the end of the 19th century. That's this kind of very seductive notion. The guy who really did do everything and you know, who was in battle, you know, surrounded by potential enemies, you know, the fantasy of this kind of battle between Tesla and Edison, which in real history, so to speak, never took place. But it's a very seductive image of the inventor, of the innovator, as the disruptor, as somebody who breaks things in order to make them better. Now, you not only draw parallels, you also say that the Victorian inventors offer a cautionary tale to the, the tech titans of today. In what way? Precisely, I think, in a lot of ways, around that kind of notion of you know, where innovation really comes from and that kind of highly individualist notion of you know, what it takes to be an inventor. So, I mean, there's a curious paradox, I think, about Victorian innovation. On the one hand, you have the increasing prevalence of these kind of stories of you know, the great individual inventor, Tesla, Edison, or Brunel. But of course, the Victorian reality was that invention technology was very much a collective process. In fact, I mean, looking at that example of Tesla and Edison, that gets bandied around so often these days. I mean, Tesla, of course, died penniless. His kind of vision of the future failed to be realized. I think one way of accounting for that is the fact that Tesla, so to speak, fell for his own height. He really did think he could change the future all by himself. And you can't because it requires collective effort. Edison, on the other hand, knew that. He had his laboratory of young men churning out dimensions in the, in the background. So the reality of Victorian invention is precisely that it's collective. And I think it's a mistake, and that some innovators now make, is to believe their own hype, to think that they can do it all themselves. And bluntly, they can't. It takes collective labor. It takes the work of hundreds of thousands of millions of people to reform the future. It's not a kind of one-man task. But it's a story that needs to be thought about quite carefully. I mean, what are the implications of thinking about innovation? in that way, and how that, in a certain sense, makes the future the individual property of those kind of iconoclastic inventors who are going to deliver it for us. Our futures should be for all of us. And when we think about how, you know, what kind of futures we want, we should be thinking about, well, what future do all of us want, not the kind of futures on offer to us by you know, basically a bunch of white middle-class men. So a lesson from the past is not to get entangled in your own hype, in particular around the notion of the inventor as a disruptor. But isn't that exactly where we are today? Well, new research suggests modern science is nowhere near as disruptive as we might like to imagine. There's been an increase in the number of innovation when we look at the number of papers or even scientific discoveries through papers and patents. However, we do show in our paper that the rate of disruptive work found in those patents and papers is declining. Michael Park from the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota. And in making that assessment, Michael and his colleague crunched the data on 45 million research papers and 3.9 million patents over several decades. They also looked for the language of disruption. So we looked at the number of new combination of words, right? So if you're introducing new ideas, you're going to have to use novel combination of words to describe them. And we see that if the decline and disruption were true, we would expect that novel combination of words are also declining. And that's what we find in the titles and abstracts of papers and patents across all fields. 
In addition, we think about the types of verbs that would be required to describe disruptive findings. And we find that the type of verbs that we would expect to be describing disruptive findings are defining well the type of verbs that we would expect to be describing consolidating or non-disruptive findings are increasing. We're not trying to make kind of a normative argument about, you know, what percentage of science should be disruptive or saying that there should be more disruptive work. We're just trying to document a trend that exists. I think depending on the maturity of the field or what people need from that particular science, you know, there are different levels of disruption that might be ideal for the field or even for society, but we're pretty agnostic in terms of, you know, how things should be. Although um, we do kind of comment towards the end that, you know, a decline in disruption probably isn't ideal across all fields because we're seeing it across all fields. That's probably not ideal. And why are we seeing this decline in disruption, do you think? What are the pressures that are on researchers that have led to this? One of the causes, for example, that we explore is the fact that scientists seem to be utilizing increasingly narrower slice of the existing knowledge that's out there. So when scientists focus on narrow slices, they're not really able to generate findings that are as disruptive. We do comment towards the end of the paper that perhaps it's tied to this pressure to publish quickly, increasingly in academia. And so scientists don't really have, don't feel like they have the capacity to be really exploring new ideas and different ideas kind of far away from what they're comfortable with when they're trying to meet these tenure requirements to publish quickly. And by focusing on narrower slices, you mean they're using or utilizing already existing research. They're not going out and doing new research necessarily. Yeah, exactly. So they're kind of staying close to home. So we see this in many different measures. So we look at the diversity of work that's cited and just the diversity of work that's cited is decreasing across time. And what you refer to gets specifically at self-citations, right? So citing one's own work as opposed to exploring others' work, self-citations is increasing. And the mean age of work that's cited in papers is also increasing, which means that scientists are kind of continuously relying on older classic work as opposed to updating themselves with the newest work. So those are the three different ways on diversity of work, self-citation, mean age of work, those are the three proxies through which we're measuring the extent to which scientists are utilizing narrow slices of work. Michael Park from the University of Minnesota. For John Van Reenen, who holds positions at both the London School of Economics and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, a decline in disruption is one thing. But what we're also seeing, he says, is a decrease in research productivity. And that has real-world economic consequences. The basic idea is that it's kind of bang for the buck. So, yeah, research effort, you could think of that as, you know, how much we spend on research and development or how many people, how many scientists, how many boffins there are trying to come up with new ideas. So that's the kind of effort. And then the output, of course, is hard to measure from a kind of economy-wide perspective, we think of it as the growth of the economy, so kind of economic growth or economic productivity growth. 
that's a very broad kind of concept. But even if you took it at that level, you can see that, you know, the kind of growth and productivity growth around the world has not been very good over the last 15 years since the global financial crisis. But more broadly, if you look back over the last, you know, 50, 60 years, growth in rich countries like United States, United Kingdom has been maybe 2% a year. But to get that 2% a year productivity growth, we've had to put in more and more and more research effort. So in that sense, the growth you're getting for the amounts that you're putting in hasn't uh, increased as many economists would, would think it should. Let me take a particular example. Think about semiconductors. We're talking a lot about semiconductors at the moment, you know, with many countries like United States trying to back semiconductor production back in the US. So semiconductors, they're going obviously in computers and mobile phones and everything. They're kind of driving force of, of the economy. And people say, well, look at that. That's an amazing success story. There's this thing called Moore's Law, which is that you can double the amount of transistors you can put on into silicon every 18 months or two years. So in semiconductors, there's been this incredible amount of productivity growth. It's been something like 35% every year since Gordon Moore, the founder of Intel, said this back in the 1960s. So that seems like a great success story. But if you look at the efforts to produce that 35% productivity growth, We've had to increase the number of scientific effort and of research and development people involved with that by 18-fold since 1976. So just to carry on at that level of productivity growth that hasn't increased, we've had to throw in more and more resources. So that's like a massive amount of effort to maintain the same amounts of productivity growth. So that's you know one way of kind of quantifying it. That particular sector, you know, 18 times more effort for exactly the same amount of productivity growth. John Van Reenen. Professor Jay Bhattacharya at Stanford University has also been tracking research productivity. And he too believes that the drop-off has been substantial and widespread. If you talk to physicists, they give you that same sense that there hasn't been the kind of breakthroughs there were, say, in the first half of the 20th century. If you talk to people in economics, yeah, there have been breakthroughs, but there haven't been the same kind of ferment and change that you saw, again, in the first half of the 20th century. A lot of fields have seen a similar kind of slowdown in the rate of growth of new scientific discoveries. If, if there's an exception, it might be, let's say, genetics. There, there's been some evidence that, that there hasn't been a slowdown. That, that's continued on. But in many, many fields, you're seeing the same kind of story. I've seen the term stagnation in science being used. Is, is that going too far? Well, I mean, if it gives the impression that no new science is being done, and I guess yes. But on the other hand, it does point to something real, the sense that we're not getting enough out of the investments that we're putting into science relative to what we might have expected. I did a study with a professor at the University of Waterloo, Miko Pakalen, where we looked at the age of the ideas of NIH-funded work versus other work around the world. NIH is the U.S. National Institute of Health. If you were writing a paper that was NIH-funded in the 1980s, you'd typically be working, it turns out, on ideas that are about three years old. Now, in the like in the 2000s, you're probably working on an idea that's about eight years old. That is a discrete change in the nature of the scientific ideas that people are working on. We're working on older ideas. You know, that's not necessarily all bad, but the point is that the, the novelty that we saw in the 20th century has become sort of rarer than it was back then. So just to summarize where we're at, 
the idea that we live in a golden age of innovation, similar to the Victorian era, is increasingly under question. What's called disruptive innovation is arguably on the decline, and so too, we're told, is research productivity. We've already heard from Michael Park that the pressure in academic circles to publish quickly could be one of the causes. But Jay Bhattacharya also sees a kind of conservative incrementalism at play. One thing that's changed pretty fundamentally in science is the age of the scientific workforce. Now, why is that important? It turns out that it's young researchers that tend to seek novelty, novelty and ideas that they explore. So just to give you some sense of this, again, let's get back to the National Institute of Health in the U.S. In the 1980s, the age of the first major grant that researchers would get would be in their mid-30s. Now it's in the mid-40s. The scientific workforce has aged, and what the consequence of that is that older researchers tend to work on older ideas. The statistic that I've found in my research is that for every year of chronological age, the age of the ideas that the typical researcher works on ages by about one year. It's a concrete change in the nature of the scientific workforce that we're older, in part because, you know, we are living longer. But what that means is that we're working on less novel ideas. And it's a very competitive funding environment. And it's a very conservative one. So in a funding environment like the one we have, you need to try to show that it's likely that your ideas will work. Well, the easiest way to do that is to propose ideas that are just marginal changes on the existing knowledge that are certain to work or very likely to work. If you try a whole new paradigm, a new way of thinking about something, what you'll see is that review committees will say, look, this is too risky an idea. It's not likely to work. It doesn't meet the standards of rigor of the other things we're funding. Of course it doesn't because we haven't tried it out yet. I've sat on NIH review committees and I've seen how easy it is to kill novel ideas. You just say, well, I don't, I'm not sure this will work. You know, it's, it's probably true. Most novel ideas won't work. But if you don't try them out, you won't find the ones that do, the, you know, the diamonds in the rough, if you will. And novel ideas, when they succeed, can sometimes take quite a while to actually show their benefits or, you know, and I'm thinking of CRISPR as an example here. Well, CRISPR is a fantastic example. The idea about CRISPR started from somebody who was just studying how bacteria fend off attacks from viruses. He was just looking at, at how bacteria store you know, in their genetic material the history of attacks that it has received from other viruses. And based on that, it can fend those off. That person wasn't planning on gene editing software. What happened is that people use those ideas over decades to amend it and change it. But it's the set of novel ideas accumulated one after another that led to this gene editing breakthrough that CRISPR actually represents. The main thing is a kind of a longer run problem, a kind of fundamental issue. So I, I think that a lot of economists thought, you know, we'd solve the problem of modern growth. There was this kind of revolution in economic thinking back in the 1990s where people said, OK, productivity growth, the growth of economies fundamentally comes from innovation and technology. And the old view was that, well, you know, Nothing. This because this happens almost by magic, but the new view was that you know we can we can change this by investing in research and development. We can actually get more productivity growth. 
So that was the view. And, you know, and of course, ideas are different from many other things that they, you know, they can be shared freely. The, the ideas that I get can be copied by you without you necessarily having to pay the same expense of coming up with them. So ideas have this kind of very powerful quality. But I think people underestimated the fact that even with ideas, there is this kind of diminishing returns. So with most activities in life, the more you put in, the more you get out. But the effort, the amount you get out gradually starts declining. So the first hour of work I do in the morning after my morning coffee that I've just had, I'm really productive. But after about 10 hours of that, I become a lot less productive. I get tired. And what's true of the individual also seems to be true of societies as well. As the body of knowledge that we've got has accumulated, as we know more and more stuff, to be able to kind of get up to the frontier just takes longer. So, you know, I teach PhD students, and it used to be it would take two or three years to a PhD. Now it takes five or six years to a PhD, not because the students are not as smart as, as they were when I was doing you know, my studies, but just because there's a lot more knowledge to learn. There's a lot more things you have to learn to get up to the frontier. So that makes it just harder to get all that knowledge and therefore, you know, push that frontier forward. Another aspect of this is that in order to solve the problems that we have now, you specialize more and more. So in order to solve a problem, working with teams with different specialities, people have to get together with bigger and bigger teams. So you see that in scientific papers. The number of authors has like exploded on each paper because you need more and more people. They have to communicate. It takes longer to produce those, those kind of breakthroughs. So the nature, the underlying nature of science has this kind of effect of diminishing returns, which we see. And I think that's one of the fundamental kind of reasons. There has been a, a trend toward focusing funding for research for, for public institutions in a way that supports the private sector. Has that exacerbated the problem? I think that there's something, some truth in that in the sense that if you look at like the US, which is the kind of biggest research funder in the world, the amount that the federal government spends on research development has kind of declined as a proportion of, of national income. It used to be in the mid-1960s, doing the moonshot, three times as high as a fraction of GDP as it is today. And you know, what's happened is that the overall R and research and development budgets have increased in the private sector. So there's been the shift actually away from research going on in the kind of public sector, which you might think is more basic research, towards private sector research, which might be more near market and makes lots of money, but doesn't necessarily have these big breakthroughs. So I think there is this concern that we've moved maybe too far in funding research, which is closer to the market, which is not necessarily making the kind of big fundamental breakthroughs that we would have done, say, back in the, the 60s, when we were really going to these kind of bigger moonshots and the public sector was more involved. I think that that's started to change. So over the last two years, President Biden, like the Chips and Science Act, has tried to put a lot you know, more money into into doing research. But there has been this, this general decline in, in support for public R&D. And then there's the academic sector's focus on citations as the essential measure of a researcher or academic's worth. The more people who cite your work, the faster you're likely to rise up the career ladder. Using citations as a measure of success is only a very recent thing, dating back to the 1970s or so. But as any researcher will tell you, citations are now all important. But it's a flawed means of measurement, according to Jay Bhattacharya. 
Think about how we measure sports stars. We measure them not on the, on the basis of a single number, but on the basis of a suite of statistics that represents many things about their ability, right? So for instance, basketball stars, we measure based on you know the number of points that they've scored per attempt, how good they are at three-point shooting, their free throw shooting, how good they are at defense, a whole host of numbers that represent different aspects of their ability. Let's talk about scientists then. Scientists, what we do is we look, we measure essentially one aspect of scientists' ability, which is how influential is our work. That is exactly what a citation is. It's a measure of scientific influence. If I write a paper and then you cite it, that means that you are saying that your ideas were somehow influenced by my writing. Now, influence is an important measure, but it's not the only measure that we should care about for scientist productivity. In particular, I think that we should care much more about the novelty of ideas that the scientists are willing to try out. They're willing to take risk of, of failure. Well, even if they fail, that's actually not a bad thing. Like if you think of, for instance, venture capitalists funding new firms in the uh, in the internet space, well, they're funding many, many firms that are likely to fail in the hopes of finding one or two or three that'll transform all of society. I think science should be like that too. I think there should be more investments in risky ideas, risky meaning in the sense of likely to fail, but in the hopes of finding new transformative ideas that have the uh, you know the potential to cure diseases, make going to Mars easier, make information technology you know much cheaper or fuel much easier or solve climate change or whatnot. All of those things are going to require pretty fundamental advances in our scientific understanding and knowledge in ways that are hard to predict in advance. And the only way we can really get at that is by allowing young, brilliant scientists to do their thing. This is where you bring in this term edge factor, isn't it? You talk about introducing edge factors for evaluating research and assigning funding. Yeah, so I've worked with uh, Miko Pakalin to develop a new statistic to be used in addition to the citation counts that normally are used. This idea of edge factors essentially looks at the published research of a scientist and then with some very, very simple methods to assess how new are the ideas in that published research. And based on that, you can calculate a statistic. So, you know, just like you would look up a sports star, a basketball star, you look up their statistics, you can look up a scientist. Actually, you can do that right now with Google Scholar will give you statistics about, you know, your favorite scientist. But they, they, the measures they show are just the impact factors they have. So they have like the measures of citations, uh, something called an H index, which is a measure of how much volume of, of work that you do combined with the influence that you have. Those are all measures of influence. What we propose is to add a measure of novelty seeking to that statistics. And we, uh, we've developed this very, very easy to calculate measure that, that in principle should be applicable to all of science to sort of put a you know, thumb on the scale so that a conservative review body won't be able to kill it just because, you know, the, the conservative review body seems thinks that, uh, that the idea won't work. You know, a lot of those review bodies are often populated by people whose careers would be hurt if the new ideas were turned out to be true. We select for people who are conservative and we set up incentives so that the people who seek novelty in their research that, that might be transformative are weeded out. So one positive thing which has gone against some of these these negative headwinds is the fact that communication has increased tremendously. So the kind of huge fall of cost of communication with the internet and social media 
that's enabled scientists and other people like the creators, innovators to talk more to other people all over the world. The integration of China in the world economy and, you know, earlier on the kind of collapse of the Soviet Union kind of meant there was a lot more integration ideas being exchanged. So that is a kind of positive force. The more people can share ideas and talk to each other, that is a kind of, you know, pushes in the opposite direction. So broadly speaking, that kind of globalization force was something which helped overcome some of these kind of diminishing returns to, to ideas. Now, of course, the worry is that if that's starting to go into reverse with some of the kind of deglobalization trends, the trade wars, the other kinds of factors, that that is the kind of concern. So I think from a policy point of view, we want to do as much as we can to protect that you know, global interchange of ideas and not let countries retreat behind their own barriers and reduce that positive force. John Van Reenen. We also heard today from Jay Bhattacharya, Michael Park and Ewan Rees-Morris. If you like the programme, say so on social media and encourage others to listen or leave a review. You've been listening to Future Tense. My co-creator on the show is Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.